Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in a moment, we'll be in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, but I wanted to, to pause for a moment as well, because before we jump into this, this next part of our series together, uh, I felt both services during worship uh, that, that there was something specific that the Lord was doing, and I don't know, I mean, Danny talked about that, and just the progression of the songs and listening to the lyrics of the songs, and sometimes I don't think that we do, but I was really struck this morning by sometimes something that we forget about who God is, and that is we forget about the intimacy of who Jesus is. That, that God is vast, and God is amazing, and God is creator, and God is above all things, but he's extremely personal. And that, that's the way that Jesus encounters us, is at a very personal level. When you read through the Gospels, time and time again, you see the multitudes and all the crowds that came to hear Jesus and see his miracles. And then you see laced throughout his story all these encounters with people. Like you think about Zacchaeus, who he was in the midst of the crowds, and then Jesus comes to town, so he climbs the tree, and Jesus calls him out beyond everybody else and invites himself to lunch at his house. And then he has this incredible encounter with Zacchaeus that transforms his life. Or the woman who, who was in the midst of this huge crowd that was kind of mobbing around Jesus, and she had had this issue of blood, and she touches his, just his clothing and immediately is healed. And Jesus doesn't just go on knowing that there's all these people around him. He stops and he pans the crowd to find her so that he can see who's just received healing. And you see that over and over, and even Thomas, at the height of his doubt that Jesus had actually risen from the dead, Jesus comes into a room and actually offers his physically resurrected body to Thomas as proof that he really is alive. And so for some of us this morning, I think we need to be reminded that what you, whatever you're walking through right now, God will come to you in the most personal way through Jesus by his spirit in your life. Now, it may not feel that way, but if you and I will expect that God, Jesus will show up right where we need him to show up. He always does. He doesn't come and somehow cause us to try to find him or figure out what he's doing. He comes right to where we're at, and all we have to do is open our eyes and embrace what he's doing. So I don't know if that's for a couple of us or for a number of us, but just be reminded, Jesus is very personal. So this morning, uh, as, we're, as I mentioned, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11 as we continue on the, in the next uh, kind of part of the series we've been walking through, series that's called Poison, and we're talking about the reality of sin in our lives. And so, quick recap for the last couple, few weeks here. Uh, remember, as we walk through, the origin of our sin comes from this, this reality that, first off, we try to become our own God. Adam and Eve tried to do it, tried to be their own God, it didn't work out. And when we finally get to the end of ourselves and realize we're not good enough to be God, instead of turning to God, we simply try to replace him. And that's when we talked about idolatry. And so we, we find a substitute for him. And then last week we talked about this reality that at the core of every sin in our life is this desire to find some kind of satisfaction. That's what drives us. But we just end up looking in the wrong places for what only God can satisfy in our lives. So with that kind of framework of sin, this morning we're going to talk about the ripple effect of our sin and what it does in our lives and what it does in the lives of people around us. And this is, this is important because many times when we talk about sin, when we talk about our failures, or we talk about where our life kind of goes off the rails and isn't really where God wants us to be, it becomes a very personal thing where we focus in on our sin and what it's doing, what we're doing to ourselves or what's happening to us and how we're going to get freed from it. But we don't realize that our own sin has this incredible impact on people around us. 
It's the, the, it's the concept of when you take a stone and you drop it into water, and the, once the stone hits the water, then what, the circles start to kind of go out from that, and they impact things around them. It's kind of the epicenter, then it moves out further and further. It's the, kind of the concept of what happens when there's a tsunami. An earthquake happens at some place and causes a ripple in the ocean that as it begins to move across the ocean, it builds, and then you have a tsunami, which is obviously incredibly destructive. And so for our sin, you and I never go out and intend in our sin to somehow hurt other people or affect people around us, but it's something that happens because the nature of sin itself is so selfish, it doesn't see what's going on around it. And so this morning, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it's a, probably a familiar passage to you if, if you've been in the church, but if not, it's a story of David's sin with Bathsheba and, and how that kind of unraveled in his life. And we're going to read that, I'm going to read that here together in just a moment, but, but I want you to understand this is... This is one of those messages when you're going, for me personally, I go through a series, it's like, okay, which one of these would you like to eliminate? This would be today. Because it's one of those things, it's like, this message is like, you know, you ever been into, a, a, like, maybe you're at a hotel or a nice place, and they have one of those, those magnified mirrors in the bathroom that's round, and it has a little light that you can turn on? So I rem- I've played with those before, and you know, it has one side's like regular magnification, then you flip it over like, oh, who is that? You scare yourself, and then you turn the light on, and then you see everything that's going on. I remember I've, I've done that, I looked at that, and I have to look away. I'm like, I didn't realize I looked that bad, and then I put my glasses on, and I can see all much more. Anybody can relate to that? So I'm telling you right now, that's this kind of message. It's like looking in the mirror, the magnified mirror, turning the light on and going, I never saw that. I didn't know that was there. And for most of us, we want to turn the light on, turn it right back to regular magnification, uh, magnification and just move on. But this, this morning is so important because of what, what happens through our sin and how it impacts people around us. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to uh, take some time to actually read through the majority of chapter 11 because I think it's important for us to hear the narrative of, of David's story and how it unfolds because every time I read this story, I, I, I think to myself, how is this possible that David could allow one thing to lead to the next to lead to the next before he realizes that it's actually influenced so many people? So starting in verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from a roof, uh, the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwells in, or dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house, eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. 
So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him in, and he ate in the presence and drank, and so that he, w- he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he uh, assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Now skip down to verse 26. It says, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David set and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Wow. Seriously, every time I read that, I'm thinking there's no writer in Hollywood that could come up with something like that. And I, want us to, I wanted to read it because I want you to see how that unfolds. That just in, in a short amount of time, David goes through this progression of sin in his life that the circles get bigger and bigger and bigger and impact more and more and more people. And that's just like our own sin, that if we don't realize that's what's happening, we realize we're not sinning in a bubble. We don't sin in a vacuum. We sin in life and in reality. And because of that, it influences and impacts people around us. And in this passage, there's three things that I think contribute to us kind of being blinded from our own sin. And there are three myths that we buy into when it comes to our own failure in our life. It's three things that David bought into and lived out in his life, which led to this, this point in his life. So the first one is this first myth that we buy into about our own sin is this. It's no big deal. We find a way to justify in our own mind that, yeah, we know it's wrong, but it's really not that big of a deal. And so we, we kind of rate our sin on a sliding scale of what, what's bad and what's not so bad. And we always find other people that are bad, but we're not so bad. So David, where, where did David go wrong here? David went wrong early on in something that he would have thought was pretty insignificant, not that big of a deal. In David's time, when the weather would get bad in the winter months, those battles and wars would actually cease. But then when you would get to springtime, when the weather would get better, that's when the kings would go off to war with their armies. And as you read in the first verse, what does it say? David didn't go with his army. David stayed back. He sent Joab and the army to go out and do what David should be doing as the king. So in his own mind, this small compromise of, I can let them go. In fact, I can't get in the, side, in the mind of David, but you can probably think as the king, I'm doing really well. Israel's at a time we're really doing well, so I deserve some kind of a break here. So I'm going to let the army go off and do its thing while I'm going to step back and just be the king. And in making that decision, you had to think in David's mind, this is no big deal. What's the big deal about this? But it was that no big deal that led to things that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And whether we know it or not, that's what happens in our lives when it comes to sin. We think something isn't a big deal until something falls apart and we realize, wow, that was a huge deal. I think I've shared this before, but I was fascinated by the way with this, uh, something happened a number of years ago. I think it's 19, uh, ni- 1988. There was a flight, a uh, 737 flight was taking off from Hilo, Hawaii to go to Honolulu. And uh, they actually, uh, after this whole accident occurred, they had interviewed some of the passengers. As one of the passengers was getting on the plane that day, he looked and he noticed that there were little hairline fractures in the outside of the plane, but didn't think, ah, it's not significant. You know, when you get on a plane, you're convincing yourself, it's safe. I, they would never intentionally put me on a plane that's going to crash or something bad's going to happen. So didn't say anything. 
So long story short, the plane gets up to 24,000 feet as it's going between islands, and at 24,000 feet from the behind, right behind the cockpit to about halfway down the plane, the whole top of the plane just flies off, blows off completely. Here's a picture of it. And what happened was is that they realized that this plane had gone through about 90,000 cycles of pressurization and depressurization. So what happened, when you go up to altitude, the plane pressurizes, so there's pressure put on it, and then it depressurizes when it comes back down. So over 90,000 cycles it happened, so there's these little fractures in the metal that started to happen over time, and eventually that little fracture that that passenger thought was no big deal became a huge deal. Now, I mean, it's tragic. There was one person that lost their life, and that was a flight attendant because she wasn't obviously in a seat at the time, but the rest of the people survived. But just think about that little hairline fracture that just seemed to be totally insignificant was a huge deal. And for us to think about our sin has that capacity within it. It, We'll think, oh, you know what? There's other sins that are worse. There's things that are, are worse that I could do than this. But that this is the very thing that can be that fracture that leads to something far greater, which is the true for David's story as well. Second thing, second myth about our sin is that it's not hurting anyone. Anybody want to ever admit that you've said that? I, I've thought that. It's not hurting anybody. This is, yeah, it may be wrong, but it's really, it's, it's only hurting me, and I'm okay with hurting me. I'm just going to do it for myself, and, and I somehow justify that in my own mind, and obviously we know that that's what David was thinking. That's what thinking, it's, it's not really hurting anyone, and Bathsheba, she's beautiful, and I mean, you know, I am the king, and and in his own mind probably felt like he somehow was justified in this. But as you see the story unfold, what does David's sin do? It hurts Bathsheba, it hurts Joab, it hurts Uriah, it it hurts everybody. Everybody involved gets touched by David's sin, gets poisoned by David's sin, and is impacted by his sin. And so when he's thinking it's not that big of a deal, it's not going to hurt anyone, now it starts, the circles get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think sometimes we, we are convinced that our sin doesn't affect anybody else. I'm pretty sure that Adam and Eve in the garden didn't think that their sin would affect anybody else but themselves. But obviously we know today their sin affected everybody. The cumulative impact on sin in our world obviously contributes to the fact that we live in a broken world. And all of our sin put together influences that and impacts that. Even when we think, oh, it's, it's not really going to hurt anybody. Actually, it's going to hurt everybody because all of our sin hurts everybody either directly or indirectly. When I was in China, the last couple of trips that I went, one of the things that's true about China as it's developed very rapidly is most of its major cities have terrible air pollution problems, especially Beijing. In fact, there are days in Beijing that look like it's cloudy, but there isn't a cloud in the sky. It's all smog. And in fact, one of those days, we were in Beijing for a few days, and one day, crystal clear, nice breeze, no clouds in the sky, blue sky, wonderful. The next day, woke up, and you couldn't see the sun. And I remember coming out of the hotel the next morning, almost at least half the people on the street were wearing masks around their mouths. Because what I was looking at wasn't fog, it wasn't clouds, it was smog. And so when you're in in a city that big, and you're thinking, you know, Beijing is huge, it's millions and millions of people, there has to be in your mind when you get in your car in the morning and you're driving around thinking, I know that my car pollutes, but so does everybody else's car, and mine's just one car in millions of cars, so what's the big deal? It's not really going to hurt anyone right? In fact, that's been the mentality in Beijing for a while. In fact, a few years ago, they actually outlawed motorized uh, scooters. They all have to be electric now. 
It's because they realize there's a problem. And every, even a little like moped is, or a scooter is going to actually make an impact on the overall pollution in our city. So every single one of those vehicles counts. Which, by the way, really crazy. When you're walking around Beijing, you, used, you usually can hear uh, a, motor pi- a motorcycle coming. When it's an electric, you can get hit and not even know it. We dodge so out of the way of so many things because you step in the street, the street is owned by vehicles, not by pedestrians. It's, so it's a really fun thing if you ever go to Beijing to dodge the electric scooters. Third myth that we buy into, the third myth that David bought into as well, is that no one will ever know. We have a tendency to think that our sin is secret, and it's done in a hidden place, so no one will ever really know what's happening. David bought into that. No one will ever know. In fact, David was so convinced of that when people start, did start to get to know, he started to make sure that he could cover himself. Because he didn't want anybody to know. But one of the things that's true about David is very true for us. Even if you're really good at hiding your sin, there's always one person who will always know your sin. God will. You can't hide it from him. And even when David gets to the end of his kind of this unfolding of David's sin and brokenness, and it says at the last verse of, of chapter 11 that what David had done displeased the Lord, but it doesn't really end there. We won't get into it, but if you go into chapter 12, what happens? God sends, because God loves David, and he's not going to let David continue to live this out, he sends a prophet named Nathan to tell David a story that is basically a story about David, but David doesn't know it. And when David hears this story about a rich man and a poor man, and when the rich man had a friend come to town, he took the one lamb from the poor man, slaughtered it for this feast for his friend, and David was angered, and he said, that guy should be put to death. And then Nathan turns to him and says, yeah, that's you. You're the guy. God loved David so much that he sent Nathan to expose him to remind David that you can't get away with this somehow you will always be exposed speaking of mopeds and motorbikes when I was uh, younger we used to go to Hume Lake as a family every year that was our family tradition our, our vacation and we would stay in a number a couple of different um, cabins that people owned and and if, if you've ever, I don't know, anybody been to Hume Lake and stayed in the cabin, a lot of times the owners will have, you have access to everything except they have one area that's locked that's theirs. And so this place that we were staying in, they had this huge basement underneath, and normally it was locked. But one trip it happened to be open. We're like, hmm, it's open. I wonder what's in there. So we opened it up, and there was this, like, pile of all kinds of toys. And there was, like, these motorbikes and a moped, and we're like, oh, I wonder if there's gas in there. So me and my brother-in-law, we pulled them out of the shed and uh, down underneath and started them up. And, like, this is cool. We're thinking, it's open. The owners aren't here. They're never going to know. Maybe a little gas out of the tank, but, hey, who knows? They're not going to really notice that. So we're riding around all the hills in Hume Lake and everything. We pull out some of my my family. was like, come out. You guys jump on it. So, like, five or six of us are riding around. This is just great. We're getting away with it because no one's ever going to know. And, and so all of a sudden, this guy comes walking down the road towards the cabin. I hadn't seen him before. I knew he wasn't the owner. And so he walks up, and he goes, hey, what are you guys doing? I'm like, hey, we found these mopeds and dirt bikes, and we're riding around. And he goes, those are great, aren't they? I'm like, yeah, this is so much fun. He goes, yeah, they're really fun. I know they're fun because they're mine. I said, what do you mean they're yours? He goes, oh, yeah, I live just down the street here, but I don't have enough room to store my stuff. But this, my friend who owns the house, he has enough room, so he lets me store my stuff. And I'm just, I'm sitting on his moped with like the engine running and I'm like, this is not good. <laughs> so, and then he actually graciously said, hey, you guys can keep using it one more lap and then I'd like you to put away if you don't. He was really nice, but I was like, oh no. <laughs> that was the last time that we found our way into anything that belonged to anybody else. But when you, you, you and I make decisions based on the fact that we think we can get away with it, that we would never, ever, ever do if we knew we were going to get caught. 
The reality with God is that you and I will always get caught. Why? Because God is in the business of exposing us and embarrassing us. No, God is in the business of loving us in a way that says, I'm not going to let you get away with this. I love you too much for that. He loved David too much for that. So understanding that those are the myths that we all deal with, now we have to kind of take a deeper look. This is when we turn the light on on the magnifying mirror and to look deep into ourselves. And that is to say, what does our sin do? How does it impact people around us? And three things from the story that we see. The ripples of our sin impact, first of all, those who are in it. Those in it with us. So in the story, obviously, David's sin directly impacts Bathsheba. You have to understand the concepts here. So people say, well, she was, it's two consenting adults, right? I mean, she, she was just as part of it as David was. No, 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 no. David is the king. Uriah, her husband, is gone. And David sends somebody to get her. And when the king sends somebody to get you, you respond. And so in this, this context, so David, in his influence and his power, is now victimizing her and bringing her into his sin so that now she's part of it. She's part of his sin now. And because of that, you and I have to understand that sometimes we welcome people into our sin. We bring them in and have them join in our sin with us and become a part of it. There's a number of different reasons because maybe they are like for David that Bathsheba was the object of his sin. And maybe it's because we want people to come in so we don't feel so bad about ourselves. If somebody else is doing it with me, then I don't feel so guilty. And so we kind of bring people in and we influence other people. I think I've shared this before, but th- we had a family that grew up across the street from us. They're, no, they're the Campbells, and they were kind of an infamous family in our, in our, our neighborhood. And I, I never figured out all of the details until I got a little older why my parents were always kind of like hesitant when we hung out with the Campbells, especially the two boys, the Campbell boys. And I knew that like every time I would talk to them about going over the house, they were like, ask, my parents would ask lots of questions. And then as you get older, you realize, okay, that was the first place that I smelt marijuana. You know, that was the first place a lot of things happened. And you're like, oh, that's why my parents were a little concerned. In fact, one of the times that, so uh, Gary and, uh, and Jimmy were the brothers, and they were bigger than I was, and so uh, I've, I've always been more thin, and so my, they, they, one day they came to me, and I didn't know this, but they were kind of sizing me up, and they looked at me, and they saw that my arms were really skinny. And there was this home improvement store called Builders Emporium in Van Nuys that we grew up right next to, and so uh, we would go over there because they had like candy machines, and they had, you could buy candy and stuff like that, and so, but the, the Campbell brothers came up with a much more efficient way of getting candy, taking it for free. And there was three machines that they had scouted out in Builders Emporium, and they figured out if you get your hand up in the right angle up inside the machine, there's a little lever you pop, and then all of the candy falls out like a, like a slot machine. But they realized that their arms were too big. So they came to me one day and said, can you help us? And I'm like, yeah, what do you want me to do? They're like, we found a way to get free candy. I'm like, I'm all in for free candy. And we walk over to Builders, and so, so they show me one of the machines. They said, all you have to do is just reach up and pull the lever, and it all comes out. I'm like, wait a second, isn't this wrong? And then this is what they said, only if you get caught. I'm like, I'm not going to get caught. So I put the first machine, I popped the lever, and boom, I mean, it was lifesavers. I remember they all just come piling out, and we're like filling our pockets, looking around and everything, and all of a sudden an employee walks up. And I'm like, oh, no. So I look at him like, okay, we're caught red-handed. And this is what he said, no joke. Remember he said, he looks at me and he says, I said, I'm sorry. He goes, just don't get caught. And then he walks on. I'm like, yes, because I knew there was two more machines to hit in the store. And we got both of those. 
And literally, we, all three of us walked out with like every pocket and every place that we could put candy, we had it. And you'd think someone would have stopped us, but we just got out the door. And then I remember getting home, and my parents were pretty perceptive. They knew that they didn't give me any money, and I came home with like, like I don't know, 20 rolls of lifesavers. And so my mom starts questioning me, and finally I confess. Yeah, I said, we went to the machines, and so of course, that was like the end for me. You know, then wait till your father gets home. Yeah, that was my life, you know, and dad came home, and it was... So the next day, I went out, and I was talking to the Campbell brothers. I'm like, oh, man, I caught it last night. I said, what happened to you guys? And they're like, nothing. I said, nothing? You went home? Didn't your parents ask you why you had all those lifesavers? No, we just ate them all. They never said anything. I'm like, honestly, I was like, I said, you guys suck. I said, my life is horrible now, and you guys get away with this all the time. And that's when I started to distance myself. Really. Next time you ask me to do something, I'm just going to say no to you. But how many times do you and I do that in our lives? We'll blame other people and say, hey, you caused me to come into your sin. How many times do you and I invite people into our sin to participate in something that we're doing that we know is less than what God has, has purposed for our lives? Second, second reality of the ripples and the impact of sin is that it impacts those around it. Not just those that we welcome in, but those are who are around it. So think about this. David compromises, doesn't go off to war, war. Then he sees Bathsheba, brings her in, sleeps with her, and then he takes Joab and makes Joab an accessory after the fact. Joab is the, is the head over the army. In fact, he's actually David's nephew, so he's a family member. And now what he's doing, he's actually using Joab as a way to cover himself. And so he's setting up Uriah through Joab so that he can get rid of the problem, which was Uriah. What's crazy, too, when you read that, that, that David gives jo- or sends a letter to Joab by the hand of who? Uriah. And what's in that letter? It's Uriah's death certificate. That's what it is. He hands it to the very guy he's going to kill to send it to Joab, so he makes Joab a part of it, because now he knows what he's doing. So he brings him in. And see, when you and I sin, there's something in us that causes us to try to make sure that we cover ourselves so that nobody finds out. So maybe we don't bring people in to participate in our sin, but we bring them in to cover ourselves from our sin so people don't know what's going on. This is part of our culture. Again, we think we've bought into the lie that somehow if I get away with it, it's not wrong. If I can get away with it. Anybody remember Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa? Anybody remember the summer of 1998? That was a great year for baseball. It was. Because the home run record finally fell that it stood for years and years and years and years. And I remember in that, that season, Mark McGuire was like hitting a home run every game it seemed like. And it was such a craze in our country that you could be watching a regular, regular non-sports program on TV and in the middle of your program, they would cut into your program and go to a baseball game because Mark McGuire was coming to bat. And everybody wanted to see the next home run he was going to hit. And it was crazy. Both those guys broke the record. I think McGuire ended up with 70 and so, so ended up with 66. And the record before that was like 61. And so you're like, how do these guys do it? This is amazing. And then at the end of that season, somebody noticed a little bottle in Mike, Mark McGuire's uh, locker, and it said Andro on it. And as they started unfolding, at the time it wasn't technically illegal, but they started digging a little deeper and started realizing that not only Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, but a good portion of baseball players were taking substances that would boost their performance. And started to see that not only were the people taking that, people knew they were taking that, but there was this circle that was formed around them to protect them. And then it got even worse. Anybody heard of Lance Armstrong? One of the most prolific cheaters of all time. 
phenomenal athlete. Would have been great to see if he would have done what he did without taking something to enhance his performance. He won seven Tour de France's. The record was five. And he won seven in a row. And he didn't just win them, he destroyed the field. The, the Tour de France is the Super Bowl of cycling. It is an insane race. And these guys are the most amazing fit athletes in the world. And then as the story comes out, Lance Armstrong, obviously, he denied it for years and years and years and years. You know how he could deny it? How in the world, for probably, I don't know, a decade, if not 15 years, Lance Armstrong could get away with cheating? How did he do it? Because there was a circle of people that protected him. In fact, the circle that protected Lance Armstrong was the circle that was protecting more and more cyclists. It's getting better now, but you know, probably five or ten years ago, if in the, in the sport of cycling worldwide, if you did not cheat, you could not compete. You couldn't. There were more people doping in that sport than weren't. And that's why if you wanted to get in and actually compete, you had to. But it was this kind of silent thing. Nobody says anything about it. Why? Because we all want to continue to do this. But so what happens is more and more people have to lie until finally somebody in Lance Armstrong's inner circle said, I can't do this anymore. And then boom, the, 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 it's like the floodgates opened up and you hear the whole story of what happened. Now, I'm not saying that all of us are Lance Armstrong, but I'm convinced that a lot of us will do things like that where we'll bring somebody in to cover us so that we won't be exposed and somehow we'll get away with it. And then the third ripple or third point of impact of our sin is it not only impacts those in it and those around it, but it impacts those innocent of it. That there are people who literally become collateral damage to our sin. They have no part in our sin, yet they pay the price for our sin. Uriah paid the price for David's sin with his life. It's interesting when you read this story, there are two polar opposites in the story, David and Uriah. So look at the comparison. David chooses not to go off to war. Uriah goes off to war. Uriah chooses not to sleep with his wife. David chooses to sleep with Uriah's wife. There's a comparison there. David lies throughout the story. Uriah will not and is an honest person. David is completely selfish through this whole thing, and Uriah can think nothing more than, how do I make sure I think of my men and the country that I live in and the war that's going on and not myself? And it's Uriah who pays the greatest price for David's sin. The most innocent person in this whole thing is the one who loses his life. And for you and I to take a step back and think about in our own lives that the sin that enters into our lives, and what does it do to people around us? And sometimes we don't even know the impact of our own sin until God says, let me show you. Again, God shows us our sin because he loves us and wants to change us. And there is good news, and we'll talk about it in a moment, about our sin. But I think all of us can look at our own sin or, or have been in circles where somebody's sin has impacted those who are innocent around them. And I've shared before my sister's journey, the one who, my sister who's closest in age to me, whose husband was unfaithful to her in her first marriage, and watching kind of the, the impact on her and then the impact on everybody else around her. Because in his mind, his sin was just be between him and the woman that he was with, but didn't realize that his sin would impact everybody else. Because the sin happened when my sister was pregnant. So the moment their son came into the world, he came into a world where mom and dad were already in the process of going through divorce. Not because she wanted to, but because he wanted to. And then I remember because of this, 
my parents who were living in Van Nuys had to relocate to Fresno where my sister was because they needed to care for her. So now they're moved. And that's, that's kind of sparked a whole thing in our family of a bunch of people moving to Fresno, and I'm still bitter about it because I don't like Fresno. <laughs> but I remember I felt deeply impacted because he was one of my best friends when I introduced them to each other. And I remember watching all this unfold and then watching my nephew who now has never had a, a, what we would call a normal life and that he's, he's gotten shuffled from mom and dad back and forth. But then the good news is watching all of this devastation from this one man's sin and watching over and over and over again God redeem every point of it. This last couple of days, I've had a chance. My, all of my family came to Simi Valley. It's like the first time in like two or three years, all of my, my sisters and their, their spouses were with us. And so we, we coaxed them to come out of Fresno, praise God, down to Simi Valley. And it was, it's the most amazing thing every time I see my sister. She is a different person. The work that God did in her life because of the brokenness of her first husband is profound. She's different. And then to see the work that, that God's done in her and in her second marriage is incredible. I mean, the joy that she has and, and watching them together and seeing my nephew flourish even though he's come out of a very difficult situation and still trying to forgive my parents for moving to Fresno, but that God still loves them too. But I, I sit back and I watch all of this and realize that even though in our sin we inf- imp- impact people who are innocent, God's grace is stronger God's redemptive power is stronger than our brokenness and even in our sin. And God will work out his redemption in all of our lives. In fact, that's what I want to kind of move to a close. The worship team is going to come and, and join me. In fact, worship team, if you'd come right now. Uh, I want us just to, as we transition, we're going to transition to a time of communion, which is the good news for us. Because here's the reality of what happens in our life. See, the end of the story for David is this. Apart from God's redemptive work in his life, he's in trouble. Because he's going to get exposed, and once he's exposed, there's no going back. He can't undo what he's done. And they're going to know that he's an adulterer, and he's a murderer, and he's a liar. But because he serves the same God that we serve, and he was believing into God's redemptive work that eventually would come through the Messiah, through Jesus, David had an opportunity to recover from his brokenness and his sin. In fact, what what David was able to experience is what you and I experience today. When we embrace who Jesus is through his death on the cross and his resurrection, what he does in our life is he begins to calm the ripples around us. We still have to deal with the brokenness that we create, but he begins to work something in us that begins to change us. In fact, I want you to listen to the words of David that, that come out of this. Psalm 51 is the outflow of David being confronted by Nathan about his own sin and brokenness and what he says in a very honest and transparent moment before God, which I think would reflects in us what we should do. So this is Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6. This is actually in the paraphrase called The Message. It says this, Generous in love, God, give grace. Huge in mercy, wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt. Soak out my sins in your laundry. I know how bad I've been. My sins are staring me down. You're the one I violated. And you've seen it all, seen the extent of my evil, or the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you. Whatever you decide about me is fair. I have been out of step with you for a long time. In the wrong sense, before I was born, what, you, uh, what you're after is truth from the inside out. Enter me then. Conceive a new, true life. Just think about those words. 
David's understanding something of what God can do that he can't do. He can't conceive something new in him. He can't change the reality of who he is. He knows he's guilty. He even says it. I've been out of step with you for a long time. And I think all of us in our own lives know that when the moment of sin comes, it's not something that just happens. It's something that's been building in us. We've been out of step with God for a while, and then boom, it happens. Jesus knows that's how human beings function. He knows that's our story. Thus, the cross. Because we're human and we are going to fail, Jesus gave his life in place of ours. He took on our sin. He was righteous and took on the sin of sinners to become a sin offering for us so that we could be forgiven, so that you and I today can come before God and we can be as transparent as David. We can say, I've been out of step with you. I've sinned. I'm wrong. And that at the end of that confession, there is this hope for change in our life. We're no longer stuck. Now we can turn from what we used to be to what God wants us to be again. But the way that happens is through this thing called confession. We have to be willing to say what God already knows is true about our lives. We have to be willing to admit the brokenness and the sin. And what happens for some of us is that means that there are other points of confession that have to happen. There are other people that now have been impacted that God calls us to for the redemption in their life that I have to go and make it right with them because what I've done is impacted them. But the beauty is, is as I've watched with my sister, all the points of brokenness in her life and the people around her, God has one by one redeemed each one. God can do that in all of us. But we have to come to him today. As we, in a moment, I'm gonna gonna pray and then as we sing one last song, you're gonna come to the the stations, the different stations where the communion elements are, receive the the bread and the cup, which are, are, are symbols that point to something so much greater than themselves. They point to this reality. Jesus said, take these elements to remember what I've done for you. Remember, once and for all, Your sin has been dealt with. Your brokenness has been dealt with. You have been forgiven. Now walk in that. But walking in that means participating in it. It's not that Jesus just wipes things clean if you just do it and now he's just going to take care of it. It comes through confessing it and participating in his death and allowing ourselves to die so that, I love how it's translated in the message, so that God can, can conceive something new in us. God wants to do something new in us, but it starts with us confessing what's old in us so he can resurrect new life. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus, in these moments, although we know the story of David is is horrific and its impact devastating, but Lord, we know that your grace and your mercy are always greater than our failure. And so today as we come to remember what you did on the cross for us, would you, in, in the midst of our confession, our being honest about our sin and brokenness, that you would rush in with your love and your mercy Lord, and overwhelm us in a way, Lord, that we see that there is a new way of living. There is something new that you are conceiving in us that doesn't have to live in habitual sin, that doesn't have to buy into the lies that it's not hurting anyone or that somehow it's done in secret and won't be exposed. Lord, we don't have to live in that. We can live in the light and truth in who you are. So Lord, would you come by your spirit and do that as we participate in your death and your resurrection today. In your name, Jesus.